Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Innovation Civilization podcast. My name is Wahid Rahman. Today's guest, Sir Paul Collier. A lot of success in the middle-income countries, they're converging very fast on the high-income countries. There's not been the same process with the 50 or so countries stuck at the bottom of the global economy. They haven't broken into these global markets. They haven't got the firms, and they are still diverging from the rest of mankind. Part of my time I'm spending on the question of how do you revive a city that completely broken, which turns out to be analytically fairly similar to the question, how do you get a, a very poor country to catch up with the rest of mankind? In today's episode, I sat down with one of the most prominent development economists of our generation. Sir Paul is currently a professor of economics and public policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University, where he's also the director of International Growth Center. He previously served as a research director at the World Bank as well. And he also wrote the famous best-selling book, The Bottom Billion, Why the Poorest Countries Are Failing and What Can Be Done About It. He's also the first guest in our podcast who's received a knighthood. In 2014, Professor Paul received a knighthood for services in promoting research and policy change in Africa. There are poor people everywhere, but the difference between poor people in the Central African Republic and poor people in America, in Central African Republic, no matter what redistribution you do, if you made it perfectly equal, everybody will be poor. That's because the problem with mass poverty is not a distributional issue. It's basically about very low productivity of ordinary people. The challenge in mass poverty Poverty is raising the productivity of the average person. And that, to my mind, comes closer to a concept that Sen developed about capabilities and the idea that human beings, people with purposes that want to do mm-hmm. things. We also talked about what is required exactly to turn around some of these nations which are stuck in mass poverty as well. All these transitions have Mm. some combination of the sort of knowledge that I've got, generic knowledge, academic expert knowledge, the sort of thing you can write in a book, plus a deep knowledge of the local context, the here and the now. Because every transition has to Mm. work here and now, and so every transition will be unique. Because it's unique, there's no guidebook saying, this is how Zaire's going to develop. There's some generic knowledge that they need, but they are going to have to do it. Professor Collier also covered the mistakes that Western institutions in the development sector, especially the NGOs, make when it comes to approaching the problem of poverty alleviation. We in the West got a terrible savior complex. We think that we can save you, and it's spectacularly not work. And so part of the message to all the international agencies is kick that disastrous habit. You've done so much damage with it and Mm -hmm. recognize that you can help, but it's places that have to do it themselves. In a lot of places, a lot of the time, it's not going to happen. If you talk to any president of a poor country, and there's two things they'll talk about, jobs and food. At the moment, Africa imports 40% of its food. Crazy. I mean, obviously, 
We need to somehow revive mm-hmm. the rice industry, and that needs investment in things like mills. It needs organisations. It needs firms to do it. Some commercial agriculture, and so jobs, food, both generated mainly by firms, by enterprise. And the poorest countries are very, very short of the organisational capital of private firms, proper firms. You know, micro enterprises, which the NGOs love because they're small and cuddly. But I'm very sceptical that micro enterprises can get a country out of this low productivity trap because they can neither do economies of scale nor mm-hmm. nor, nor economies of specialization and so yeah. moving beyond micro enterprises to proper firms that's a huge difference we also talk about some of the lessons we can learn from the emerging market economies who are managing to break out of this mass structural poverty cycle and are also showing some signs of immense growth. Bangladesh, India has got a lot of modern economy and their characteristics are two things, clusters where mm-hmm. firms come together on a physical place, they cluster together to get scale economies, not just of the firm, but of the whole cluster of firms and value chains. It's a global transmission where here we will specialize in this cluster and then we'll add some value and pass it on over here to another cluster, which adds value. And it's what a modern state needs to provide. It needs the sort of infrastructure for the connectivity, the clustering and the transport to markets. And it needs non-human energy, electricity most fundamentally. And if you look at any of these fragile states, And they don't do either. They haven't got the basic ingredients of physical connectivity. We also talk about leadership and the relationship between the ruler or the leader and his or her citizens in achieving shared goals. No ruler has enough power to achieve their objectives. They desperately need the willing compliance of citizens. For example, you need most citizens to comply with paying their taxes without a lot of fuss and bother, learning from trial and error and listening actually gaining the confidence of citizens. So there's very one very important phrase we've not come up yet, and that's willing compliance of citizens. No matter how much power a leader thinks they've got, they've nowhere near enough power to achieve their objectives on their own. That and much more coming right up. Professor Paul Collier, thanks a lot for coming to the Innovation Civilization Podcast. What a great pleasure to have you here today. Well, thanks for inviting me. Let's get going. Brilliant. So to start off, Professor, can you share with our listeners on how you started off your illustrious career and what made you so interested in topics of development and economics and governance? I know that you wrote like four books on the topic. So yeah, you can tell us where you started off and what made you so interested. Well, I'm a sort of curiosity, really. Both my parents left school when they were 12. And so I had the starting conditions in life, not so very different from millions of kids I see in Africa or, you know, South Asia, really. And I was one of those one in a million that hit a lucky streak. I was in the right place with the right people at the right time. And so from that unlikely background, I became a student at Oxford. And there I was up against competing with a load of people who'd had it so much easier that it was actually rather easy for me because I suppose I developed a bit of grit and that's always an advantage in life, you know. So I then you know, sort of rose up to the most junior to the most senior form of life in Oxford economics. And then I went to the World Bank 
to Joe Stiglitz brought me into direct the research department, which was a, just a fascinating experience. It was a time, I got there in 1998, which was the East Asian crisis. And Joe was in the thick of that. So there I was with all these institutions that were IMF, World Bank, so important. And then my good friend and Gozi and Conjo Viala has just become the head of the World Trade Organization. So I got one network, which is, you know, some very, very fancy people. And another network, which is my relatives, who are still stuck where I was, in a, but in a city that's collapsed. And so part of my time I'm spending on the question of how do you revive a city that completely broken, which turns out to be analytically fairly similar to the question, how do you get a, a very poor country to catch up with the rest of mankind? So that's me in a yeah. nutshell. Yeah, that makes sense, really. And we're going to get into some of that. So let's talk about that. You know, so you touched on the thing about shattered cities and poverty. So let's talk about poverty, right? So I think this word has been thrown around quite a bit in all different circles from, you know, the top to the bottom. So how are we kind of defining poverty here? And what is the kind of right holistic definition? Is it just like a financial poverty? And if so, is there like a threshold? Yeah. So what would you say? Basically? Okay, it's a good question. I think there's two slightly distinct answers. One is that in poor countries, in the very poor countries that I worked in, sort of the poorest countries, the low-income countries that have really fallen behind, and the fragile states that are on the edge of collapse, there the phenomenon is mass poverty. And that's very different from when I was in Washington, you tripped over mm. poor people on the sidewalks of Washington, yeah. six blocks in the White House. So there are poor people everywhere. But the difference between poor people in the Central African Republic and poor people in America is that in America, if America wanted to do something about it, it's a rich enough place that it could just, the, the people who've got money, and I don't mean the super rich, just ordinary people could lift poor people out and they'd barely notice it. Whereas in Central African Republic, no matter matter what redistribution you do, if you made it perfectly equal, everybody will be poor. Mm -hmm. And that's because the problem with mass poverty is not a distributional issue. Mm -hmm. It's basically uh, about very low productivity of ordinary people. Ordinary people work hard, but they're miserably unproductive. And so the challenge in mass poverty is raising the productivity of the average person. And that, to my mind, comes close to a concept that Sen developed about capabilities and the idea that human beings, people with purposes that want to do mm -hmm. things. And so the lack of an ability to do anything is the essence of the poverty because you can't have a fulfilling life if you can't do things. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about how much do I consume. We're not fundamentally consumers. Mm -hmm. We're fundamentally doers. And so you need to be empowered enough to be able to do things. We'll come back sense. to that in a bit, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you mentioned about kind of mass poverty. So I think in your book, in your first book, I believe, The Bottom Billion, you basically talk about mass poverty, right? So who are these bottom billion here? Yeah, so the bottom billion, most of them still haven't escaped. 20 years later, nearly, from when I started to think about writing mm -hmm. the bottom billion, 20 years later, very few of them have caught up with the rest, started to catch up with the rest of mankind. So that's the tragedy that, in many ways, the global issue is not poverty, it's divergence. It's that the countries at the bottom are mm. largely falling further behind. And so mm -hmm. it's divergence big time. The countries in the middle, so the middle sort of five billion, are catching up with the top billion pretty mm -hmm. well. And that's, you know, that's the great story of India and China, both really, really catching up 
very strongly. There's still a lot of poverty mm-hmm. in both China and India, but there's hope in those societies. There's mm-hmm. credible hope that your children will have very much better lives than you know than people like my parents had. And in the bottom billion, at the, the moment, by and large, there isn't that credible hope. If you mm. were a kid in mm. the Central African Republic or the Democratic Republic of the Congo or Somalia, you mm-hmm. wouldn't really have credible hope of a better life within your society. Yeah. You might think, where's my hope? Get out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's no good. People have to have credible hope within their societies. Professor Paul, in his book, The Bottom Billion, which was released a decade ago, talks about four structural traps that the 50-odd countries who are stuck in massive poverty have experienced. Number one was the conflict trap. Number two is the natural resource trap. Number three is a trap of being landlocked with bad neighbors. And number four, the trap of bad governance in a small country. 73% of them have been through civil war. 29% of them have been in countries dominated by politics of natural resources revenues, 30% are being landlocked with bad neighbors, and 76% have been through a prolonged period of bad governance and poor economic policies. Since the release of this book a decade ago now, I asked Professor Paul to reflect on how things have gone since then. Let me come to updating. I've nearly yeah. rewritten it. I'm writing a a new version called the Eye of the the Needle. I'm just on the last couple of chapters. So um, let me tell you what what I've learned since writing it, because that's that's kind of exciting. Yeah. It actually, I don't know if you've followed this week's Nobel Prize in quantum physics, who's a quantum physicist, got the Nobel Prize for work on something that sounds wildly esoteric and different, but he's got this concept of basins of attraction, Mm -hmm. more than one basin of attraction. Think of two basins of attraction, one of which is pretty awful, DRC, Zaire, and another is bloody brilliant. Let's call it Denmark. Mm -hmm. And those are two basins of attraction. What that means is they're locally stable. If you get in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. of something like the Congo or something like Denmark, there are local forces keeping you there. Mm -hmm. So they're basins of attraction. Sure. You get in in their zone and they they take you there. And in the worlds I'm dealing with, those basins of attraction both work by the same process, which is the, the ideas in people's heads lead them to behave in a certain way. And in aggregate, that behavior then leads to a set of outcomes which tend to confirm the original ideas. And so you stay there. It's an ergodic relationship. You back back into you start. A place like the Congo is trapped in a set of ideas which are blame basically backward-looking blame games, mm-hmm. where the main blame is each other. So the mm-hmm. very fragmented societies, the, the basic idea in each of the groups in society is mm-hmm. we're poor because of you. Sure. And so guess what? That produces behavior where people never come together to look forward about solving problems together. Sure enough, the society fails. And they're blaming each other? Is that Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what they expected. They expected mm-hmm. things to fail because, mm-hmm. why did I fail? Because of you. And sure yeah. enough, things failed. And so yeah. I'm dead right. It's you. And okay. that's a, a godic relationship. You're trapped in it. A blame mm-hmm. game. A backward-looking blame game, right? Okay. Now let's go to Denmark. COVID hit. They yeah. didn't know what to do, right? Very sensible young woman leading the place. Not much mm-hmm. education. I know her. 
Meta Fredrickson. But she did understand, my God, COVID's something we catch from each other. So she said, whatever else you do, protect your neighbour. Infect your neighbour. If you know guy like Paul, stay out of the way of young people so they can get on with their lives, right? If mm-hmm. you're a young guy um, with kids, don't kill granny by mistake, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Now, and so they all did that. They'd learn all by coming together and protect each other. It work. And so mm-hmm. Denmark's ended up with the lowest excess mortality in the world and mm-hmm. the lowest economic hit in the world. So we'll save people at the expense of the economy or the economy at the expense of people. It's saved both. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's another ergodic relationship. They came together mm-hmm. around a mm-hmm. new problem, worked together on it. Mm-hmm. It worked. And so next time when there's a new problem and somebody says, you know, this is what we better try and do, they'll all do it because they know by coming together, mm-hmm. taking responsibility for your life mm-hmm. and for the lives of others, it works. Those are the two basins of attraction. And the problem is you mm-hmm. need to move between. Mm-hmm. You need to get out of one basin of attraction and get into another. Right? Okay. You okay. need to get out of the the backward-looking blame game and yeah. get into the basin of attraction for Denmark. And that's hard. And you can't mm-hmm. learn about it by looking mm-hmm. at Denmark because Denmark didn't become Denmark by being modern Denmark. We all started dirt poor like the Congo. We all started like that. Lawless, stateless, yeah. um, small, isolated. You know, And we escaped that some of us, and some didn't. But the process of escape is very different from the process of being in one of these ergodic states trapped in it. Mm. Um, So when the process by which Denmark became modern Denmark, very different from being modern Denmark, and it's like scaffolding. To build a tall building, you need a lot of scaffolding. When you finish the tall building, you take the scaffolding down. So you look at at a tall building, you look at the Empire State Building, you say, oh, that's fantastic. It gives you no clue as to how to build it. And so you, what you need to study and what the book is about is that process of transition from a lousy basin of attraction to a good one. Yeah, that's very interesting. This base of attraction that you mentioned, this is more like a mindset that basically scales within society and then ossifies that mindset within that group of people. And what it's whether it's good, which is like problem solving, or it's bad, which is like a blame game. So yeah, that's the you, kind of just it, it. So it's not yeah. that complicated. Sure. Um, you can dress it up in fancy quantum language or whatever, you know, yeah. but it basically you can understand it in a few minutes as you just yeah. And then you've got to drill down into the details. So what in practice do you do? And all these transitions mm-hmm. have some combination of the sort of knowledge that I've got, generic knowledge, if you like, you know, academic expert knowledge, the sort of thing you can write in a book, plus a deep knowledge of the local context, the here and the now. Mm-hmm. Because every transition has to mm-hmm. work here and now. And so every transition will be unique. Because it's unique, it's really uncertain. It's a one-off event. There's no guidebook saying, this is how Zaire is going to develop. Yeah. There's some generic knowledge that they need, but they are going to have to do it. That's the, the fundamental message is we in the West got a terrible savior complex. We think that mm-hmm. we can save you. And it's spectacularly not work. And so part of the message to all the international agencies is kick that disastrous habit. You've done so much damage with it and Mm -hmm. recognize that you can help, but it's places that have to do it themselves. In a lot of places, a lot of the time, it's not going to happen. There's nobody there to do it, in which case there's nothing to be done. These dysfunctional basins of attraction like Zahir Mm -hmm. periodically are pretty unstable. 
Leaders mm. change. Awful events happen that concentrate people's minds. And those are opportunities. So, for example, in Africa at the moment, I point to two really big opportunities. One is Sudan, which for years was run by a, a thug. I had lunch with him once, you know. I, I, <laughs> How did you? I get to meet some very nice people and some... <laughs> not so nice ones. But anyway, there were years where there was nothing could be done by the international mm. intervention in Sudan. We could have smashed it up. We could have bombed it, but that wouldn't have done any good. Now there's a moment where there's a very interesting coalition formed between the military that got rid of the old dictator when he became total embarrassment, and the street protesters, they've formed a power-sharing deal. Mm -hmm. They've come together, and mm -hmm. now they're looking at how can we solve problems together? And it's doing really remarkably well. So mm -hmm. there's the opportunity that they're doing it. The yeah. key thing is they're doing it. We can make things easier for them or mm -hmm. harder for them, but they've got to drive it. And mm -hmm. they won't get it perfectly right. They certainly won't do all the things we think are such a good idea. Sure. But they will learn by trial and error. Yeah, just localized solutions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Trial and error. But okay. they do need some mm -hmm. generic knowledge. So it's their process of fusing sure. stuff that people are at. So I've got a team in, yeah. in Sudan working for them. And the great thing about our team is mm -hmm. we've absolutely no, we're no threat. Mm -hmm. There's nothing behind us. We don't do it for money. And we're, we're financed by a couple of donors, but they've no influence by design. They've no influence on what we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We just bring them the best expertise we can bring on issues mm -hmm. that they say they need to know about. Yeah, so it's about finding the right epoch of time to bring in all the external technical help. I think you had a section in your book where you're comparing the venture cap industry yeah, with absolutely. aid agencies, right? So yeah. is that kind of the example, basically? Absolutely. So venture capital works by seizing the moment, seizing the opportunity. And of course, the nature of these circumstances is you don't get it right. Sometimes I worked with, with David Cameron on Tim Besley on a, a commission called Escaping the Fragility Trap. And we're really proud of what came out of that. But I remember you know, when David Cameron got his head around it, he's a clever chap. He understood it. And he said, look, it's better that we go into five of the two opportunities than one of the two opportunities. Because mm -hmm. if we go into five, we'll learn fairly quickly that three are not working, you know, mm -hmm. we'll waste a bit of money. But if we miss the one opportunity in 30 years in a place like Zimbabwe, which we did, that's catastrophic. Do they have to wait another 30 years for an opportunity? Who knows, you know? So he was completely right there that the bias is towards, if this could work, let's see if it does. Let's give it the benefit of the doubt. But at some stage, there's got to be a judgment of realism. If this is really not going to work, if this is really is a bunch of crooks who've been mm -hmm. kidding us, then, then no. Yeah. That makes sense, really. And so let's get to that in terms of the international agencies that's there, you know, so in the kind of, you've been at the World Bank, which I guess allocates capital in a developmentalist ideology. There's lots of resource in the world, but maybe not properly allocated. So how should we think about capital allocation, you know, I think you mentioned also in your book that within countries which are developing, private capital should exceed public capital. I think you mentioned in one of the things. Yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, what will stabilize Mm. Fragile countries, most of them, mm. is jobs. Yeah. You, know? you talk to any president of a poor country, and there's two things they'll talk about, jobs and food. Yeah. You know, at the moment, Africa imports 40% of its food. Crazy. I mean, you know, there's a billion people mostly living in rural areas, and there's a huge amount of land, and some of it very fertile. And I've been working with Sierra Leone, 
Now, Sierra Leone, its staple food is rice. Why? Because they used to grow it. They used to export it all over West Africa, right? And they now import about 90% of it, right? And so, obviously, we need to somehow revive mm-hmm. the rice industry. And that needs investment in things like mills. It needs organizations. It needs firms to do it. Mm-hmm. Commercial, mm-hmm. Some commercial agriculture. And so job food, both generated mainly by firms, by enterprise. Mm-hmm. And the poorest countries are very, very short of the organizational capital of private firms, proper firms, you know. I mean, it's yeah. not micro-enterprises, which the NGOs love because they're small and cuddly. But mm-hmm. I'm very skeptical that micro-enterprises can escape, can get a country out of this low productivity trap because they can do, neither do economies of scale nor, mm-hmm. nor, nor economies of specialization. And so yeah. moving beyond micro-enterprises to proper firms, that's a huge difference. So when we say micro enterprise, you mean like small social enterprises helping, or what is it exactly? Well, I mean a lot of SMEs. Or... The, the reality of mm-hmm. what I mockingly call Eden, mm-hmm. the sort of NGO paradise of bliss. Um, okay. The reality of Eden was that people are solitary. Basically, they work either alone or just in three or four. And small is not beautiful. Small is pitiful. It's um, it's low productive. No scale, no specialization, no interdependence. The modern economy, you know, you look at a modern economy, Bangladesh, India has got a lot of modern economy, and their characteristics are two things, clusters, where mm-hmm. firms come together on a physical place, they cluster together to get scale economies, not just of the firm, but of the whole cluster of firms, and mm-hmm. value chains. What's a value chain? It's a global transmission where here we will specialize in this cluster, mm-hmm. and then we'll add some value and pass it on over here to another mm-hmm. cluster, which mm-hmm. adds value. Mm-hmm. And then it will go round. It goes all along the coast of East Asia at the moment. And then it's eventually exported to, you know, the big global markets, North America, maybe the Middle East, you know. So clusters and value chains. And that's what a modern firm is capable of doing. And it's mm-hmm. what a modern state needs mm-hmm. to provide. It needs the mm-hmm. sort of infrastructure for the connectivity, the clustering and the transport to markets. And it needs non-human energy, electricity, most fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And if you look at any of these fragile states, and they don't do either. They haven't got the basic ingredients of physical connectivity, and they haven't got reliable and affordable non-human energy. So they're not habitats where firms can function properly. That's kind of what needs to be changed. That's something that the World Bank and the IMF could finance. And one of the huge mistakes that the World Bank made back in the 90s was the idea that all that sort of basic infrastructure of connectivity and energy could be done by the private sector in these Mm -hmm. fragile states. And that's a bridge too far for the private sector because the return on all that infrastructure depends on whether it's used by other firms. And in in fragile states, those firms are not there. There aren't the users. If you build it, they might come, but they might not. Just having the infrastructure itself doesn't do anything. There's no return on infrastructure unless it's used by the private sector. So would you say that the World Bank, I think China, for example, does this in Africa with a lot of concessional loans, creating infrastructure and the Belt and Road and what have you. So should the World Bank do something similar in terms of giving out, doling out lots of money for infrastructure building in in these countries? I think so, frankly. I think the the tragedy, I'm I'm not a great fan of what China's been doing, but that's, I think, 
partly because it's had no competition. Yeah, It's got a complete monopoly in that game. When China says mutual benefit, which is what they say, it will do mutual. I'm I'm quite a fan of mutual benefit, as long as it's genuine, um, because mutual benefit means both sides have got incentive to stick to this. The the Western saviour charity role aren't I good. This year... I believe in girls' schooling. So put a lot of girls' schools. And then next year, oh, that's boring, isn't it? This year, (laughs) it's saving the climate. You pay for the schools. I'm going to save the climate, you know? And so that's that's charity. It's not very reliable. Mutual benefit's better. but, But when China says mutual benefit, it means we'll make sure that it benefits us. You better make sure that it benefits you. And Mm -hmm. then it helps if you read the Chinese small print in the contract you've just signed. So some of the things that they've got people to sign are certainly beneficial for China. It's not clear that they're so beneficial for, and of course, they might even benefit the presidents of these countries, but not (laughs) because the presidents are not trustworthy agents for, for the society. So competition Mm-hmm. is what China really needs in Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's what it hasn't had because the you know, the European donors who dominate, mm-hmm. they, they dominate the World Bank for a start, the IMF, mm-hmm. um, they've been on this sort of social agenda for the last 20 years. We mm-hmm. will save children. I, I think it's actually a very bogus sort of moral imperialism. If states themselves don't do things like provide schooling for children or security in the streets, if citizens don't see this, their states doing that, if they see some foreign NGO or yeah. bank doing it or, you know, gift of the people of Belgium or something, it leaves no space for the government to forge a basic social contract with its citizens. Yeah, yeah. So whereas the infrastructure is bloody expensive, the state can't provide that in a fragile state. There's no money. I mean, look at what happened with COVID. This is a digression, yeah. but it's quite important digression. Um, important, yeah. You know, COVID smashed into Africa. It's still smashing. It also smashed into Europe. What was the response in Europe and North America? The government spent 20% of GDP, 20% of national income, very sensibly mm-hmm. protecting the organizational capital of their firms. Firms in Germany, in America, in Britain, firms didn't go bankrupt. Their organizational capital's been buoyed up. The, ge- the government went in heavily to debt, 20% of GDP, just to keep them alive each year. In Africa, the figure's not 20%. It's 2%. So they start with very much less organizational capital in the private Mm -hmm. sector. And then they devote only 2% to helping it because they've no money and nobody does anything about it. You know, that's, to my mind, a a complete disgrace. We know that these places desperately need more private sector organizational capital. And we've not even got around to protecting the little they have. So shocking. The the idea that we are the savior of these places is, Mm -hmm. to to my mind, a a disgraceful piece of moral imperialism. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's moving on a little bit. So in your book, you mentioned about basically turnarounds, right? You know, states which basically turn around. And we mentioned, we talked about, okay, what what we need to do basically in, in terms of turning around. So I've got a list here of some of the kind of turnarounds that we've seen. So it's, for example, the Meiji Restoration in Japan in 1868, huge turnaround, Singapore in 1965, China in 1978 from Deng Xiaoping, you know, when, we, when they started experimenting with market economies and stuff, Estonia in 1991, 
1991 after the fall of the Iron Curtain and Manmohan Singh in India in 1991 after his economic policies came in. So from your perspective, to go from poverty to prosperity, like what does a state need to do to basically turn that around? What all these people had in common, all these turnarounds had in common was some good leadership, right? I think leadership helps. I think there's also a bottom-up process where people do come together. A lot of the solutions are pretty local. We've been, certainly in Britain at the moment, the main killer is not COVID, it's loneliness. Sure. We don't need a national ministry of loneliness with a Whitehall policy on we will tackle loneliness, right? Yeah, and yeah. What we need is, is local communities coming together and doing very simple things to find who are the lonely people and let's do something about them. You know, so some processes of turnaround, but I think the big stuff requires good leadership. And all of those were examples of leaders not just saying, I know what to do, I'm going to do it, but learning from trial and error and listening, actually, gaining the confidence of citizens. So there's very one very important phrase we've not come up yet, and that's willing compliance of citizens. Mm. And no matter how much power a leader thinks they've got, they've nowhere near enough power to achieve their objectives on their own. I mean, look at North Korea, right? Dynasty that's been ruling South Korea, a lot of co- more coercive power than any other leader on earth, right? Because they're so brutal and they've got this pervasive spying system. Everybody mm-hmm. spies on everybody else. It's a sort of East German Stasi on low yeah. trust society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you look at what is delivered, famine, famine, mass starvation, mass poverty, people desperate to get out. And so very little cooperation from citizens, citizens spending their energies trying to find ways of working out, uh, outside the system rather than complying mm-hmm. with it. And that's always true. No ruler has enough power to achieve their objectives. And so they desperately need the willing compliance of citizens. For example, you need most citizens to comply with paying their taxes without a lot of fuss and bother. Nobody wants to pay taxes, but, you know, other people in the street do. You'd be in absolute disgrace if you were caught out not doing. So there's a lot of social pressure that just in a good society that says you better pay your taxes. You know, so Denmark raises 55% of national income in tax. Incredible. <laughs> it's Incredible. not a low-tax environment, right? It's, a, it's the most yeah. successful society on Earth, but it's not a low-tax environment, very far from it, right? But they get huge citizen-willing compliance. The leader of Denmark isn't the ruler pulling a lot of levers. They are the communicator-in-chief explaining to people what new things we need to come together to do together. We need to pay our taxes, otherwise we've no revenue. You know, We need to protect each other from COVID. We'll have a, a complete health disaster. So willing compliance. And building that depends upon building trust between a leader and citizens. Now, if you were living in the Central African Republic or Mugabe's Zimbabwe, Would you Mm -hmm. trust Mugabe? No, right? Mm -hmm. And so all these poor societies and fragile states don't start with leaders who have trust. Lee Kuan Yew didn't start from trust. Singapore was a deeply corrupt society and very poor when he came to power. He he campaigned, I'm going to end corruption. Ever heard of that? 
Does any, can you think of any other leader in Africa? Every damn leader I know campaigns on, I'm going to end corruption. And what do they yeah. do when they get in? They jail their enemies. They say to their enemies, you're corrupt. I'm yeah. going, you're jailed. What, they, what that shows the citizens is mm-hmm. not that the guy's against corruption, mm-hmm. but that he's going to be a thug against his enemies, right? So Lee Kuan Yew, in his first election campaign, he had no money, but he wanted to run a campaign. And so a rich guy rich business guy, offered to finance the campaign. So he said, yeah, okay. So he was bankrolled by this rich guy. And then when he won, he gave the rich guy some position in the public sector. And then he discovers to his horror that this guy is abusing that power for his own purposes. He's been corrupt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what do you, what would you do, Waheed? What would you do? You tell Get him, rid of him, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what he did. Right? <laughs> but the temptation is, of course, yeah. to say, for goodness sake, stop doing it. Or yeah, say, sure. don't, don't do it in public. Huh? What did Lee Kuan Yew do? He jailed him. He didn't just get rid of him, he jailed him. Incredible. That's the slogan that I give, jail your friends. My friend Ngozi Nkonja Viviada is yeah. a fantastic woman who's now heading the World Trade Organization. We yeah. were at a meeting with a load of Africans. When she heard me say that, jail your friend, she leapt across the table and hugged me. She said, that's the slogan, Paul. And, and because that is, if you go into some technical economics for a moment, that mm. is Mike Spencer's concept of signaling. It's a costly action, jailing your friends, if they're corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it reveals your type. It reveals that you can be trusted on this issue. And that's how um, Lee Kuan Yew rapidly built trust where there hadn't been any. So that's the sort of great actions that are needed by great leaders. My heroes are Lee Kuan Yew and Sisaretsi Karma, who was the mm-hmm. first president of Botswana. And we've got five minutes for Botswana. Yeah. He, I, so Sisaretsi Karma, if there was a Nobel Prize in economic policy... He had it, right? I mean, he's dead now, but he's a great man. And De Beers, the diamond company, mining mm-hmm. company, came to him and said, we'd like to prospect for diamonds in Botswana. You've probably got some somewhere because most mm-hmm. of the neighbours have. Them. And we don't know, you know, we don't know where they are. We have to prospect. So Botswana was full of clans and clan leaders. So Karma went round all the clan leaders and said, what do you want? We could have a system of whichever clan finds it, they keep the money. They keep the diamonds. Or we could have a system where whatever they found, it belongs to all of us in Botswana. Which would you like? I'll do whichever you like. You just think mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And all the clan leaders thought about it. And the nightmare scenario that they all conjured up was the neighbouring clan gets diamonds. We don't. And I'm the guy who's agreed that the neighbouring clan should keep all the money. If I am found to have had to have agreed to that by my clan, I'm no longer clan leader. Right? Sure. All of them came back and said, "Oh no, whatever they are now, that's a great, that's a good leader." Realizing that, bringing people together and getting agreement on that. But why Karma is a great leader is that De Beers told him, "We've done just enough prospecting to know that mm-hmm. your clan has got diamonds." Mm. And so Karma was able to say to other clan leaders, my clan's got diamonds, but I think it should belong to everybody. You go and see what you think. Now, that was a great leader. The difference between a good leader and a great leader is a great Mm. leader has Mm -hmm. some moral purpose about it. Yeah. A good leader is one who's shrewd, but a great leader is one who has moral purpose. Moral purpose, yeah. Cool. That's brilliant. Let's move on slightly. You did mention this briefly, uh, as you mentioned about countries like Bangladesh, right? In in your book, you talk about this, some kind of like an autopilot development going on, which is basically, even if you're scoring really poorly on the transparency international rankings you're poor and corrupt but you nevertheless make progress anyways because you've got like this export 
uh, oriented labor intensive products and services manufacturing whatever from cheap labor so can you explain how this kind of autopilot development kind of works so bangladesh stumbled into manufacturing garments and it stumbled into mm-hmm. it because mm-hmm. one rather foolish international garments company came to Bangladesh, decided that the cheap labor in Bangladesh made it attractive to produce mm-hmm. garments. And the trouble was, they didn't know anything about Bangladesh. So they set up operation. And by the end of the first year, half of their workforce had quit, not because they were lousy jobs, but because they realized that they first of all, they'd learned enough to know how to run a garment firm. They knew who the market, who the, where the markets were, what you needed to bring in, and you know who you could sell it to, and what process, what the production process was, which was very simple. So they understood that. They also understood that this firm hadn't got a clue about how to operate in Bangladesh. Hmm. But they had, so they quit and set up their own firms, and they thrived. The firm that stumbled in is still functioning, but it's not a great, it's not a big success. Bangladesh generated a Bangladeshi-owned huge garment industry, which the last time I looked was exporting something around, I think, $30 billion a year, which is vast. Mm -hmm. It's also employing 4 million, mainly young women. And that, because there's now 4 million jobs for young women, that changed gender relationships within families because instead of young women having to work under their mother-in-law in their husband's family, they got mm-hmm. an exit strategy. And so that massively empowered young women. And those of us who believe in you know, gender empowerment, that was a really good thing. So now, Bangladesh was still pretty corrupt. These firms learned how to operate in that environment. And Bangladesh's politicians have often been no better than they ought to have been. You know? But that's been a success story despite rather than thanks to the politics, if you see. Yeah, that's correct. And I think you mentioned that the government had nothing much to do about it. It's basically the nature of the cheap labor and, yeah. as you said, finding yeah. a market and creating a cluster that kind of formed. So you just don't need to basically mess up. That's the yeah. you know <laughs> lower <laughs> yeah. minima versus you know, positive maxima you know, yeah, kind, of, right. kind of that's strategy, right? right? So some things have got to work. Yeah. You need a functioning port and that sort of thing, or a functioning airport. So some things have got to, but you know, it's quite modest to get started. Ethiopia managed to get a, a manufacturing base just over the last 10 years. Pretty successful, pretty fast. Simple stuff, trainers, you know, the sort of things that my teenagers mm-hmm. have on their feet. So th- that took off very successfully. The first firm in was a Chinese firm to come and try, brought in to come, very much with the government's support in this case, but just struggled to break even. I know the woman who was organising it, Helen Hay, because she realised that what she desperately needed was a cluster of firms. Until she had a cluster of firms, she didn't have the scale economies that would enable the, her firm to work. And so, very sensibly, why did I know her? Because she was at every damn business conference on earth saying, mm-hmm. it's great in Ethiopia making trainers. You make a lot of money here. And we've got to know each other through always being at the same events. And it worked. Mm-hmm. A lot of firms did go. And because they've all gone, they've got a cluster and they're all profitable. And then, of course, Ethiopia's just stumbled into fragility with a conflict going on. So that's mm-hmm. the fragility wild card, as it were. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I know we're running out of time. So let's get to the last question question I have for you. So, Professor, zooming out a little bit. So if you look at the kind of World Bank figures, the percentage of global population in living absolute poverty, which is like $1.90 a day, fell from like 80% in 
1800s to like 20% by 2015. The average kind of middle income person living today probably lives better than John Rockefeller in 19th century because they've got access to electricity, internet, sanitation, life-saving medicine, and what have you. So does that mean that we're kind of on the right trajectory in terms of alleviating poverty and establishing strong societies? What's your kind of last take on the broader picture of where the world is going? Okay, there's been a lot of success in the middle-income countries that have actually, they're converging very fast on the high-income countries. There's not been the same process with the 50 or so countries stuck at the bottom of the global economy. They haven't broken into these global markets. They haven't got the firms, and they are still diverging from the rest of mankind. And that is the future of the, if you like it, the poverty problem. I prefer the sort of philosophy that Marty Sen had with the notion of capabilities and which Michael Sandel has recently put forward, which is the notion of contributory justice. Everybody should be in a position to be able to contribute to the whole. Mm. We have get dignity, not by being consumers, but Mm. by being sufficiently productive that we can contribute our bit to the whole. Mm. And so we're coming together. And the tragedy in the poorest countries is that's not happening. That's the battle that has to be fought. And remember, we in the West can't save them. We can make it easier for them, or we can make it harder. I'll end with a salutary note, if you like, which is a natural experiment. The Nobel Prize in economics has just gone to somebody who really pioneered natural experiments. And Here's one that's not been explored yet. And it's the two countries which are called Somalia and Somaliland. Now, they were both the ethnic composition of the people in Somaliland and Somalia is the same. They're all Somalis, right? And aren't you, I guess. And Somaliland, after it had got independence, joined Somalia in a federation. And so the United Nations recognized that federation as the mm-hmm. entity and has never changed its mind. Right? Meanwhile, when Somalia collapsed, Somaliland, in practice, separated again and decided to run its own show. And it's a natural experiment because, because it wasn't recognized by the United Nations. No mm-hmm. international agency, no donor agency would have mm-hmm. any dealings with Somaliland. So mm-hmm. Somaliland knew it was completely on its own. Somalia, internationally recognized, has had the full, the full treatment well, mm-hmm. by IMF, United Nations, peacekeepers, mm-hmm. the whole damn caboodle, right? But if we actually look at where what's happened, I've got a team that works with both of them. With Somalia, we have to do it by Zoom. It's too dangerous. With Somaliland, our team goes there regularly. And mm-hmm. Somaliland is, in a modest sort of way, it's not wonderful because it's not got enough, it's not got any help. It's actually doing better than mm-hmm. the international effort. So it's a salutary, it's not, that doesn't mean we shouldn't help, but it means we should be much more modest about whether we know what to do, because in Somalia, whatever we've done clearly hasn't worked very well. So I want us to do better than Somaliland. Somaliland plus help that's in Somaliland's control. A start would be to do better than what we've done in Somalia, where we were in control, but it didn't work. Yeah, makes sense. Hope for the best. Thank you very much, Professor, for your time today. And uh, we hope to have you soon on the podcast again. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks. Awesome. 
Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.